there are stories from the past that help us to think through the kinds of challenges we're facing in the present and I think it's that narrative power of history that can be quite useful. Using history to show how we've dealt with change before and how we've adapted in the past. There's a danger I think in not, in not trying to look back at the emotions and not exercising our empathy and our imagination to try and understand the lived experience, the internal experience, the kind of affective life worlds of, of these people that we're writing about. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Thank you all for joining us today for this Emotion and Anxiety in Environmental History panel discussion hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute and the Australian and Aotearoa New Zealand Environmental History Network. Uh, and in the spirit of reconciliation, both the Institute and the network acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. And we pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples joining us today. So I'm Andrea Gaynor and I'm an environmental historian based on Noongar land at the University of Western Australia. And before we move on to our speakers, I'd like to briefly introduce our host organisations. The Sydney Environment Institute is a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research and it brings together innovative thinkers from the University of Sydney and beyond to address critical environmental challenges. The Australian and Aotearoa New Zealand Environmental History Network distributes information about forthcoming events and new publications and generally seeks to cultivate and support a community of scholars with a shared interest in the environmental history of Australasia. So... Uh, today you'll hear from a diverse panel of historians who work on drought, flood, climate change and ecological anxiety as they discuss the environmental and psychological impacts of environmental change and we're looking here for some clarity, community and relief. And so this event is really about opening up a, dis a space for discussion around environmental history and we look forward to continuing this discussion into the future. This is very much a, a first step so... Uh, we're very grateful to the Institute and the network for, for opening up this space for us. So please write your thoughts in the chat and if you have any questions for our speakers, put them in the Q&A box and we'll try to get to them at the end of some short presentations. So we're going to start today with Rebecca Jones, who's a historian of climate, agriculture, health and resilience. Her research integrates environmental history and contemporary rural and mental health in the late 19th 20th and 21st centuries. And she has experience both as an academic and as a public historian. She's the author of Slow Catastrophes, Living with Drought in Australia, which was published by Monash University Publishing in 2017. So welcome, Rebecca. Thanks, Andrea. So I'll be discussing diagnoses of climate-related emotional instability among settlers in remote, arid, inland Australia in the interwar years. These diagnoses were made by nurses and doctors working for the Australian Inland Mission and its offshoot, the Flowing Doctor Service, who run, ran nursing clinics in communities such as Birdsville, Unadatta, Inaminka, Beltana in the northern Flinders Ranges and Broken Hill. These clinics served pastoral mining transport communities and travellers, as well as the indigenous communities associated with these. Climate and weather-related emotional problems were characterised as asthenia, neurasthenia, debility and various nervous disorders. They were not diagnoses of insanity, um, but more emotional stability, a kind of ill-defined mixture of temporary 
physical and emotional symptoms, which included fatigue, malaise, depression, anxiety, weakness and inability to cope. These diagnoses accounted for about 126 out of approximately 20,000 patients treated in these clinics in the 1920s through to the 1940s. So they were rare but notable. They included both men and women, although given the predominance of men in these remote areas at this time, women were overrepresented by about a quarter. No Indigenous people, or so-called Afghans, were diagnosed with these ailments, only settlers. Over three quarters of these conditions were diagnosed during periods of very hot or very dry weather. These complaints were considered to be directly related to climate, combined with the associated water and food shortages in, um, in the remote areas. The lives of people in these areas were inextricably entwined with and in fact defined by heat and dry, intense sunlight and remoteness. Temperatures were consistently hot for about six months of the year. Rain was irregular and there was occasional serious flooding. The landscape was dominated by rocks, salt, sand, sparse vegetation and even sparser populations. Statements about emotional health and ill health are intertwined with understandings of the body, social and historical context, differing vulnerabilities based on gender, race, class, occupation and remoteness. So in order to understand these diagnoses and the way they were experienced, it's necessary to explore layers of meaning behind these diagnoses. By placing experience and diagnoses of emotional distress in the context of prevailing ideas of health, climate, race, gender, we can better understand the emotional states which the climate evoked. I can't unpack all of these layers today but I'll speak briefly about two narratives of health which were common in the first half of the 20th century and which influenced the way people of British, Irish and Northern European origins understood and experienced health in these hot climates. The first narrative was climatically determinist. It's a legacy of both 19th century colonial theories of climatisation and race and ancient miasmic concepts of permeability of bodies. It states that people who racially hail from temperate climates, so British, Irish, Northern European, were innately vulnerable to intense heat and sun which penetrated white skin, sapped vigour and disturbed nerves, making people susceptible to mental and emotional and physical breakdown. This theory related specifically to people in tropical climates, but it was also evident in the diagnoses of people living in arid areas in the period that I'm looking at in interwar years. Both sexes were considered vulnerable to the climate, however women generally considered to be particularly susceptible. Even up to the late 1940s, some people, including nurses and doctors working for the Australian Indian Mission and Flying Doctor Service, believed that women could only cope with the climate in the inland if they had a complete change of environment once a year. Understandings of emotion are never monolithic and a second conflicting narrative of health was influencing diagnoses and experience of climate in the interwar years. In the post-Federation decades, political imperatives to settle the land, confidence in a new nation and influences of biomedical concepts of health were jostling for space and rationalising settlement in the inland. The hot, dry environment of arid Australia was also believed to promote 
physical and emotional vigour among settlers. And if they could cope, it was believed they became stronger. Inlanders were praised, indeed mythologised, as particularly vulnerable, sorry, particularly capable, adaptable, enduring and uncomplaining. The remote inland, it was argued, had created an improved, hardier version of the white settler. This rationale motivated the founding of the Australian Inland Mission by John Flynn in the early 20th century. So both of these narratives were not only intellectual and political concepts, but they actually influenced the diagnoses and the way patients were treated. The remedy for climate-related emotional complaints was to insulate patients from intense heat and sun. Nursing clinics, run by the Australian Inland Mission, were considered outposts of modernity, science, domesticity and civilisation, and were the first line of treatment. Sufferers were often admitted for two or three or sometimes even more weeks. Serious or chronic cases of asthenia and nerves were totally removed from the environment and evacuated to the inland, preferably to coastal areas. So we can see these differing concepts of ill health also influenced the way settlers experienced the weather and emotional distress and the way people with these diagnoses were viewed by others. The first narrative normalised emotional distress among settlers in hot climates, suggesting that some level of debility or emotional breakdown was beyond the control of the individual and to be expected due to a settler's race. But by contrast, the second narrative implied that debility or nervous breakdown was due to individual deficiency or failure. Emotional distress was pathologised and this resulted in shame and judgement for those who failed to live up to the myth of the inland settler, but also pride and shared identity amongst those who did. So how is this brief account relevant to the, president, to the present? Of course it is. History is an interplay of past and present and living in the Anthropocene with increasingly extreme weather nudging my own experience I've been influenced um, about what I've chosen to research because I believe that understanding the way people experienced and understood emotional responses to extreme weather in the past may help us to learn how to, or how not to, adapt or at least better understand our emotional responses to extreme weather in the present. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rebecca. That um, that really highlights the power of narrative in shaping both understanding and experience of um, environment-related emotions, and I think that's a theme that we'll return to uh, throughout the, the presentations today. So next up we have Margaret Cook, who is a history lecturer at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and her research interests are so-called natural disasters. And we know that disasters are very rarely actually natural. Uh, she's the author of A River with a City Problem, um, A History of Brisbane Floods, published by University of Queensland Press in 2019, and co-editor with Scott McKinnon of uh, Disasters in Australia and New Zealand, Historical Approaches to Understanding Catastrophe, published by Polgrave in 2020. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Andrea. Today I'm going to talk about environmental change in the context of disasters, and in particular, in particular I'm going to look at floods and bushfires. Um, disasters are a moment of crisis for societies and individuals, and they bring culture and human relationships with their environment and emotions into sharp relief. Today I'm going to draw on my work on floods and the work on bushfires by my colleague Dr Scott McKinnon at the University of Wollongong 
and draw on the oral histories that we've both conducted. While it's perhaps obvious that the loss of lives and property may cause grief and sorrow, our work has exposed that the emotions experienced are far more complicated than first perceived. They have a temporal dimension that must be considered that have implications for how we manage disasters in the future. We recognise that with climate change, these fires and floods may become more extreme and more frequent in the future. So this gives greater urgency to our historical research. Today I just want to cover two areas. One is the psychological and emotional impact of floods and bushfires on those who've experienced them to suggest ways that this could be considered in disaster management. And just very briefly, I want to touch on the emotional impact on historians working in this space and our role. So first up, the psychological and emotional impacts of floods. After a disaster, authorities are really keen to rush in and restore a community to normal, you know, get back to business as usual. After the 2011 floods in Brisbane, on one weekend, more than 9,000 volunteers, known as the Mud Army, poured into people's homes and they were keen to help and clean up. Furniture and possessions were tossed onto mounting rubbish piles on the footpaths. Carpets were ripped up. The walls were stripped of damaged sheeting. And some owners were just left with skeletal houses, any sense of their home just gone. Now, the media rhetoric was celebratory. The Mud Army were heroes who rescued those in their hour of need. Mud Army members went home. They threw their mud-soiled clothes into the bin. And while some told me about survivor guilt, most just had a hot shower and a virtuous sleep and returned to their normal lives. But many of those who'd been flooded felt violated. Strangers had entered their homes en masse, stripped out all their possessions and thrown out their lives. They spoke of having no time to sort, and many things of value, both monetary and sentimental, were lost to the dump. Some expressed gratitude as they didn't even know where to start, and they couldn't do it alone, and they were really, really genuinely grateful for the help. But others expressed desire um, disquiet at the rush and already emotionally vulnerable. They felt powerless uh, to make decisions in the rush to clean up. Decisions on their property were made by nameless helpers that they would never, ever see again. Those who actually cope better were helped by family and friends. The process, more personal, and the ongoing relationship helped the recovery. Scott McKinnon's research on fires has found that this rush actually retarded the grieving process. Authorities were concerned about safety and recovery and they rushed in with bulldozers to clear the burned houses. But homeowners expressed a need to wander around the wreckage first to heal, the, um, to heal themselves. Some needed to talk and others wanted silence and peace. Psychologists talk about the seven stages of grief that follows individual timetables. And many people interviewed felt that this process was curtailed or rushed in the societal pressure to recover. And this increased their anxiety and their emotional toll. In both floods and fire, people speak of temporal issues. At first they are inundated with help. They, then they feel forgotten 
as floods and fire recede into history. Interviewees expressed anger that those not flooded could move on with their lives while they were still dealing with the consequences months later. Some people never recover from flood. They experience mental health issues, marital breakdown, poverty and homelessness, to name just a few things. A year after the summer 2019-2020 fires, some people are still living in makeshift accommodation and others are better off because they had insurance. People who have experienced floods speak of sleeplessness and panic in heavy rain and in hot dry summers they have increased fire anxiety years later. Disasters become a temporal marker in people's lives and it's forced into a binary of before the fire and after the fire. And that becomes the moment when everything changes forever. This is just a really brief insight into the diverse emotions experienced by those affected by our floods and bushfire. But I argue that these complexities are not considered in disaster recovery plans. Counselors and social workers appreciate individual grief and trauma. I'm not referring to them. I'm referring to government recovery teams and plans that are more likely to treat the community as a homogenous group. Disaster managers see the physical damage, the ruined houses, and they develop a plan on cleaning it away and rebuilding. But the more intangible aspects of mental and emotional health are overlooked, and the rushed impersonal recovery processes for some actually just add a second wave of trauma. I want to suggest some strategies that could reflect the individual needs and the timeframes in which these are considered. And just briefly, mainly for the purposes of discussion, I want to look at the emotional impact on historians working in this space of disasters and our role. Listening to these interviews can be really emotionally harrowing and can require debriefing. But far more importantly, I think it raises questions about the role of historians as dispassionate observers or active participants in the storytelling. How we frame and tell these stories is really important. Whose stories are we telling and what narratives, for example, the Mud Army heroes, are given preference and which stories do we ignore? As historians, we need to find and record these disparate voices and respect the nuanced relationship people have with their environment to recognise emotional connections that are made so clear in times of disaster. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks very much, Margaret. And again, um, I think you've really brought a historian's kind of uh, expertise or, or training in picking up nuance and um, specificity and context and applied it to the, the questions here. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, questions arise from our, our audience um, in relation to that. And also, of course, narrative and framing. Uh, next up, thanks very much, uh, Margaret. Next up, we have Nancy Cushing, who's an Associate Professor of History at the University of Newcastle on Awabakal Awa, and Darkinjung country. Uh, an environmental historian whose interests span human and other animal relations as well as energy. She's co-editor of Animals Count, How Population Size Matters in Animal-Human Relations, published by Routledge in 2018. Uh, she's also a member of the executive committees of the Australian and Aotearoa New Zealand Environmental History Network and the Australian Historical Association. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks very much, Andrea. 
Awabakal land is where I often am, but not today. I'm on uh, Dharamaragal land in northern Sydney today, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. So I am going to talk about anger, and we've all felt it, and we've likely applauded anger when it takes what we see as a righteous form. This was the anger that activated Black Lives Matter's protesters after the murder of George Floyd in June 2020, and the white-hot rage that pushed Australian women to stand up, speak out, and declare enough in March 2021. My focus is on an anger which has received attention from politicians and the media, arguably shaping both labour policy and the recently announced Australian Way plan to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, but it has largely been overlooked by scholars. While researchers have focused on the eco-anger directed against the practices which have created and exacerbated climate change, there has been less attention paid to the anger being expressed by those who believe themselves to be wrongfully harmed by changes made to mitigate climate change. Here, I'm going to refer specifically to those involved in coal mining in the New South Wales Hunter Valley, both active miners, their families, and the many others whose identities are embedded in past coal mining. This is the region where the impacts of coal mining have been so marked that they inspired Glenn Albrecht to develop the concept of solastalgia. I experienced this anger personally in 2019 when I issued an invitation on the Facebook group Lost Newcastle for people to come along to a talk that I was giving on the 1909 coal monument erected to mark the jubilee of local government in Newcastle. I explained that the talk would speculate on whether the monument's time was up, suggesting that it could be retired to a museum and replaced with a coal counter monument, which would gradually decay and eventually disappear. As it seemed obvious to me, based on government policies outside of Australia and corporate policies within, was the imminent fate of the coal mining industry. I'd given a keynote on this topic at the 2019 AHA Greenstream, and the resulting article will appear in History Australia's next issue. Unfortunately, my sincere invitation was not well received by the people on Lost Newcastle. I was called names. I was derided as an out-of-touch academic and a blow-in Canadian who couldn't possibly know anything about Newcastle's history, And that was despite my Australian citizenship of 30 years standing at that point and a PhD on the history of the city. The angry voices declared that time was decidedly not up for the coal mine monument, that after a century, uh, sorry, after coal mining had ceased in the city a century earlier, uh, coal was still central to local identity and to community pride. The same anger that I experienced had been expressed at the 2019 federal election when sitting ALP member for the Hunter, Joel Fitzgibbon, came very close to losing his seat to the One Nation candidate. And this was a seat that Labour had held since 1910. Even though Fitzgibbon championed the coal industry, many had decided his party was not to be trusted. Labour now occupies an awkward position, fearing the label of being anti-coal. So what drives this angry response? 
No one really knows what sort of future we are going into. And for coal mining communities, rather than a simple shift to solar or wind power or electric cars, decarbonization means reshaping their culture and identity and challenging their pride in the past. Coal phase-out for them entails, in Johnston and Hilscher's words, complex processes of social, cultural and material reorderings which threaten social networks. And I would add, it threatens the sense that they uphold a proud tradition. In the Hunter Valley of the 19th century, underground mining meant that many coal miners lived in isolated communities dominated by their industry, economically and culturally. They developed strong local identities, viewing others as capitalists seeking super profits based on denying the dignity of their labor, or weaklings who knew nothing about the bravery and endurance required to raise the coal that heated the country's homes, powered the ships, and ran the factories. Continuing traditions brought from coal mining regions in the United Kingdom, these communities developed their own values and pride in their work, and their solidarity was expressed in early unionization. They mobilized anger, which is known to be associated with collective action, to fight back against the bosses. Pride and anger were not their only publicly expressed emotions, however. They also built memorials to the sudden disasters of lethal gas explosions and cave-ins and lived with the grief they represented as an enduring presence. Now, confronted with the slow disaster of climate change, that grief is again present. This was expressed by a resident of another coal region, Appalachia, in the United States in an interview with Carly Evans and Kaniski. The informant said, There is also a sense of grief that comes along with it. You know, coal mining is really a part of the culture here, and it's interwoven into the way people feel about themselves and their own identity and their identity as a community. But rather than sitting with this sense of loss as grief, it is the other familiar emotion, anger, which has emerged. Anger is considered an activating emotion, one which motivates behavioural attempts to lessen a perceived threat, typified as a fight response. This anger has been turned against the messengers and the measures they hold out as being ameliorative. Not believing in the possibility of a just transition, they seek to denigrate and delay the transition in any form and have been encouraged in this position by politicians who respond to their rage with promises that coal mines will stay open, remain competitive and adapt for as long as global demand allows, as uh, Scott Morrison said in his release this week. As Van Boven and Sherman argue, based on their study of American politics, elite cues that evoke anger foment conflict on contentious issues like climate change. So going back to my own situation, none of the angry lost Novocastrians came to my talk. I'd been a bit worried about this, actually, and had even considered whether to alert the university security staff. And I think this is one of the most dangerous things about anger, that it can cut off communications. On the one side, the angry are rendered unable to hear other people's point of view or participate constructively in shaping a path to a sustainable future. On the other, people are intimidated, afraid, and do what they can to avoid possible confrontations. 
What I had hoped to do was to discuss how the end of coal could be memorialized as past coal mining tragedies had been by establishing sites of memory which could serve as a focus of mourning and remembrance. But dialogue, exchange and a middle ground are less likely to be found when the red mist of anger sits between the parties. And in this case, no such meeting occurred. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nancy, for those insights. That's um, uh, I, I can't help but think of your analysis as kind of projecting coal miners as a kind of em- emotional community, which is a concept that's um, quite central in a lot of um, history of emotion studies. So it would be interesting to return to that at some time. Uh, and I also commend to everybody's Nancy uh, commend to everybody Nancy's forthcoming article in History Australia, which, based on the the talk that we heard at the AHA, is going to be brilliant. Thank you, Nancy. Moving on now to James Dunk, who is a historian of medicine and psychology and a research fellow in the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry at the University of Sydney on Gadigal land. His research explores how the physical environment has figured in mental health. He's the author of Bedlam at Botany Bay, published by New South in 2019, which won the New South Wales Premier's History Award for Australian History in 2020. And his writing has been published in medical and history journals, as well as in Australian Book Review and Griffith Review. So he's a very multi-talented thinker and writer. Thanks, James. Thanks, Andrea. This year, COVID has been joined on the world stage by a string of intense climate events, with many places on fire, battered by wind, bleached and parched ground and disordered. It's getting harder to remain aloof, isn't it, from the ecological issues which are now more visibly and powerfully gripping the planet and disrupting its system. That view of the blue marble, fragile and isolated, taken from space 50 years ago, is finally entering our general consciousness. We live on a planet which is finite and mutable. Planetary crisis is registering broadly in our lives. One distinct manifestation is the rise and rise of eco-anxiety, which the British Medical Journal defines as the chronic fear of environmental doom. It's not yet formally diagnosable, but it's been widely diagnosed informally, especially among young people. In a recent survey of 10,000 young people across the world, three quarters felt that climate change made the future frightening, more than half that humanity was doomed, and 40% were hesitant to have their own children. A large proportion of young people across the world reported significant emotional distress, fear, anger, despair, guilt, shame, depression, and grief. I want to talk for a little while today about how the new word eco-anxiety, which is a shorthand for this cluster of inner states, points to a new site for environmental history. To be clear, eco-anxiety is a real psychological phenomenon and describing real suffering, and we need to address it in those terms. But I think that noticing, noting the criticism that has been levelled at this idea might help us to understand it more fully. So first, why are we using the language of mental illness to talk about an external uh, planetary reality? You may know the Lars von Trier film Melancholia, which is an extraordinary evocation of inner states. Its drama comes as its characters respond to the news that a rogue planet has broken from its orbit and will crash into the Earth. And at the film's end, there are terrifying, striking images as a final interior drama is played out against the backdrop of a planet rising enormous over the horizon. Climate change is a rogue planet that has been making its slow approach for centuries and which has been announced over recent decades. It threatens to tear apart the biosphere in slow motion. And so against this backdrop, how are we to act, to feel and think? What are healthy levels of climate concern? What are healthy levels of climate change? 
and indeed what kind of pathologies are involved in the counterpositions of denial, disregard, magical thinking, and techno-fantasy, in projects to launch moons or alloys into the heavens to deflect solar radiation. Is it possible that climate anxiety manifests most powerfully and most perversely in those who reject outright the findings and stark warnings of climate scientists? Or is this an adaptive response? There's also an, an economic and ethical critique here. The effects of climate change are falling most heavily, of course, in the developing world. It's already producing conflict, forced migration, and new patterns of disease. Climate change is making for all kinds of comorbidity, and further entrenching structures of poverty that share common roots and drivers with the climate crisis itself. Eco-anxiety is not a direct measure of climate-related distress, but a measure of how climate distress is registering psychologically, and this is observed earliest and most acutely in the developed or overdeveloped world. So what are we really talking about? What intermediaries, what framings, what psychological and emotional histories might be at play? And what might eco-anxiety offer to environmental history? In his classic introduction to the field, Donald Hughes describes how the general environmental awakening of the 60s and 70s produced a secondary awakening in history. To see the environment not as a backdrop to human history, but as an active, formative force. He describes three sites where history meets the environment. Uh, histories of the way, firstly, that the environment has shaped human history, often in very broad strokes. Secondly, entangled histories of how humans and the environment have shaped each other. And thirdly, the history of human responses to their environments, including environmental ideas and emotions and politics. Historians were rediscovering other species in a discipline long preoccupied with humanity, and it were, was a revisionist project. Equipped with new environmental knowledge, Donald Worcester and William Cronin argued that history would now need to make ecological sense, and that it would need to become more inclusive. But it was more or, more or less at this moment, as historians began to discover specific places and ecosystems and environmental forces, that the biosphere as a whole, the planet, was coming clearly into view. Experiments in global governance and advances in environmental science were assembling a view of a finite and fragile planet, the soil, water and air of which were becoming choked and poisoned by human activity. Human aerosols were depleting ozone in the stratosphere so that solar radiation fell more harshly, damaging the eyes and skin and immune systems of humans and of other systems, uh, species. Here was a new, dramatically scaled-up history of entanglement, with human lives powerfully shaped by Earth systems, which were being powerfully shaped by human activities. Worcester called for a planetary history at this point, arguing that historians now had two histories to write that of their country, or really their field, whatever it was, and that of the planet Earth. Historians have been, though, reluctant to move beyond their human fixations, perhaps for some of the same reasons that many of us have been slow to take the needs and rights of other species seriously. Though, of course, the other speakers today indicate the strength of an environmental history, which is now rapidly expanding. But I think eco-anxiety points towards a general turn towards the environment, a more general, a wider turn, which may have been forced upon humans kicking and screaming, anxious and despairing, but it's a turn nevertheless. Because isn't eco-anxiety, this ecological distress, finally registering and widely registering in human consciousness? Part of this is no doubt shallow and instrumental, as we continue to think of and fear first for ourselves. But I think eco-anxiety is also, at some level, the late dawning of environmental consciousness. The heavy realisation that we ourselves and our families and communities are not safe from the collapse of ecosystems. That the crisis is not environmental in the sense of external to us. It's a human crisis. 
Using the medical language of anxiety will help us perhaps to develop coping mechanisms for navigating the crisis. But if we force planetary distress into an individualized medical model, there could be great costs, I think. We'll miss firstly the opportunity to hear the signals of planetary distress for what they are. But we'll also miss perhaps the, the opportunity for a new strand of environmental history. To understand this new entanglement, the shared vulnerability, the sharp ecological consciousness that has been forced upon us. And perhaps we'll also miss the opportunity to write new environmental histories of change and of hope, to write towards what Glenn Albrecht write, uh, calls the earth emotions, the positive emotions, lurking on the other side of solastalgia and eco-anxiety. Thank you. Thanks very much, James. Um, immediately, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of what is particularly unique about eco-anxiety in our contemporary age as opposed to, say, 1962 when Silent Spring was released and a lot of people were um, starting to think of themselves as enmeshed in, in wider ecologies. But we might just let that idea sit for a second and uh, move on to um, our questions. We do have a couple of questions coming through on the Q&A, but we also received a, um, a, a question, a pre-event question. Um, we can't assume that the emotions we feel now are the same as those felt in the past. And Jackson Perry asked prior to the event, how far into the past do you feel comfortable projecting our contemporary definitions and understandings of certain emotions? So as environmental historians, uh, are we assuming that the emotions we feel now are, are similar or analogous to those felt in the past? I mean, this kind of complicates our ability to extrapolate from past um, past experience or to use historical narratives to inform the present. Would anyone like to comment on that? Yeah, I, I think that's a really um, pertinent question, Jackson, particularly for this forum. Um, and I, I think that while we're, of course, you know, as historians, peering through our own lenses at the past, um, I, I hope we're not really trying to project onto the past, um, but to try and understand what's what's a, a different world. So we might explore, we need to explore the, the many layers of meaning behind all the emotions being expressed in the past, um, you know, the temporal, the social, um, the environmental, people's literacy, their ethnicity, their class, their geographic location, all of those kind of things, um, and it's of course well as the, the physical environment. Um, and the, the manners and the, the the ways that these emotions are ex, ex, expressed. So we we while looking through our own lens, we're stepping into those shoes or trying on someone else's glasses to use a different metaphor. Um, um, while acknowledging that they're not our glasses or not our our shoes. Um, and so I think you know it becomes more challenging the further back in time you go. Um, but it's it's not just a temporal challenge. I think the challenges are also, it sort of depends how different the people are that you're researching from you. So, so they can also be different in terms of you know, age group, you know, whether they're children or whatever, their literacy, their ethnicity, those kind of things, as well as the temporal environment that they existed in. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, historical empathy is one of the skills that we try to cultivate um, in our students and as part of our historical practice, that understanding of um, temporal otherness as well as diversity in the present. Would anyone else like to, to comment on that one? I can jump in. Um, it, I think it depends on resources too. I, I mean, I did oral history and quite contemporary history, but if you're looking at, uh, say, diaries or uh, letters as I've done from uh, you know, 
know, only back as far as the 1930s, the, the language does talk about anxiety and uh, health and so on. So um, sometimes whilst I appreciate that we can't um, extrapolate too much, when the language themselves is, is guiding you in that direction, I think that offers a level of confidence as a researcher. I could just come in on lack of confidence because mm -hmm. thinking about coal miners, you know, they were really considered a group apart. They were sometimes described as a separate race in Australia. Uh, and, and a lot of the accounts of um, expressions of anger, for example, in, in the 19th century would be around um, industrial disputes and it would be an outside person describing them as angry so that it, they were reading. They were perhaps, you know, shaking their fists. Perhaps they were, um, you know, act aggressively. And this was perceived as anger, but we don't always have the inside account of how did you feel that day, which, which you're able to get through oral history, some, some semblance of that. So I would, I would be cautious. I think just a final word is that there's a danger, I think, in not in not trying to look back at the emotions and not exercising our empathy and our imagination to try and understand the lived experience, the internal experience, the kind of affective life worlds of, of these people that we're writing about. It's, I don't know, it's a, we can be a little bit over cold or mechanistic in the way we look at actors. When we don't have those resources, those sources to use, we can sometimes think we can't go there at all. And that's, I think, a shame and a danger. Absolutely. It's hard, but we love a challenge, don't we? Uh, oh, gee, the questions are coming in thick and fast now. So um, let's turn first to Libby, who was first in line. She says, thanks for your paper, Rebecca. I'm very interested in the distinction between insanity and emotional instability. Is the latter more about external factors, climate, weather, etc., and the former more an internal factor, even genetic? Fascinating to consider historical medical diagnoses. And a, a follow-up there from Libby, this is Libby Robin. Maybe James Dunk can also reflect on that question um, that that she's posed to Rebecca. So this one's about insanity on the one hand and emotional instability, and how how and why that those kinds of distinctions are made historically. I guess um, I think it's it's on on one level it's a, a level of degree and and a level of pathology. So uh, yeah, it is partly the external force versus the internal, although that's that is kind of disrupted by that second narrative that I talked about where where people are seen to be individually capable of adapting and coping rather than racially capable. Um, so I think it's more about a kind of level of how much of an altered state um, it, these diagnoses were. They were not implying any kind of level of sort of altered state of reality. They were just an extension of a normal reaction to a challenging climate um, is how they were couched. Yeah, and interesting, that same um, binary or same distinction between what is normal and what is considered a reasonable response um, uh, and what seems like an unreasonable, irrational, over-the-top response is part of that language about eco-anxiety and around um, the young people of today who are, you know, up in arms and in the streets and, and getting protest and protesting and currently, you know, on a hunger strike outside the White House, um, which is interesting. I mean, I don't know what kind of language is being thrown at them, but partly uh, we see the language of insanity and illness weaponized in these cases. It's not actually an extension then of, um, you know, it's not diagnostic clarity that people are after. It, but sometimes it's 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 to attack people and say that's insane, get insane. 
yeah, I think it often is about the level of degree and permanence. Instability is more about shifting and insanity is more a complete lack of reason and an absence of reason. And I think this leads very nicely into our next question from Warwick Anderson, who says, great presentations. What are the opportunities for collaboration between critical humanities scholars, including historians and those in the mental health care field? Uh, which is obviously a pretty large and diverse group who are studying and treating anxiety and trauma related to environmental fears. And I guess this this also relates to a question that I had, uh, which is how what what can historians in particular, um, given that we do have a panel of historians here, what can we bring um, to uh, that that's unique to our disciplinary knowledges and skills? What can we bring? to um, contemporary psychological um, and other health um, kind of research and approaches to environment and emotions. So perhaps we could re- reflect on those ones more broadly. What what can we as historians bring to those who are studying and, intre- and treating trauma um, and anxiety related to environmental um, change and environmental well, collapse? I think James, um, towards the end, was getting there. I think... Um, what we're talking about now is is an adaptation. The, the old paths aren't working. We need to um, encourage people to have different conversations and make different choices. And I think that James is talking about using history to show how we've dealt with change before and how we've adapted in the past. And and maybe um, um, that I lost my train of thought a bit there. But um, that I think. Um, that that's the role that we can do as historians is by um, historicizing some of these discussions and these narratives and these emotions, maybe they can help understand the present more and maybe even a nod at guiding the future and how we navigate these difficult, you know, wicked problems that we're all talking about. Yeah, I think that's what historians are always best at, isn't it? That we, we put things into that, that temporal context and uh, and I think Rebecca's going to come in because we've had a offline chat about a particular area so I hope you're going to talk about it Rebecca. I I have worked with psychologists um, for well, about five years I think at Monash um, and I think one of the one of the challenges is also the um, potential um, and that is that the Psychologists often work within a positivist framework. We often work within a constructivist framework. And I think that does prevent a lot of um, communication. It, it does cause us to see each other as just walking down two parallel paths. But when they can meet, when our constructivist frameworks can provide extra insight into the positive its findings, um, I think that's when fantastic things can happen. Um, I, it, I'm i actually just starting out on a project with a psychologist to talk with young people through Headspace um, next year about the climate distress in Australia. And partly um, the psychologist I'm working with is really keen for the historical depth that, um, that you know, historians bring, that I'll bring, uh, to really put um, psychological thinking, different ways of thinking psychologically about the environment into context to be able to kind of listen to young people and then respond with some historical depth instead of that kind of um, sense, which is interesting, Andrea, it came out of your first comment that, you know, that we have this new thing around us when it actually there's a, quite an old history of anxiety and concern and distress about the planet. But we have a sense always that we're, you know, the first to experience everything. That's, um, of course, n- never, never really quite true. At the same time, I think... Um, one of the things that we can do as historians is to say this is an old conversation and yet 
things haven't changed. You know that half of the emissions that we've had in the in, uh, stratosphere have been had since 1990, at the very time when these first you know, first kind of large statements about what needed to change and, um, and you know, the huge efforts to um, change global governance uh, were going around. Um, yeah, you know, I've got more to say, but I won't take the time. Yeah, no, well, I think that's one of the strengths of history, isn't it? It allows us to see what is truly unique about our times and what is what resonates with events and and people and feelings in the past. Um, and, and that can be quite powerful, I think, because people can draw analogies and see that, yeah, a situation is unique, but um, there are stories from the past that help us to think through the kinds of challenges we're facing in the present. And I think it's that narrative power of history that can be quite useful. I mean, we could probably do with some training, in fact, in uh, kind of narrative therapies and storytelling therapies, and it would be interesting to to think about those kinds of collaborations as well. It sounds like a fascinating project you've got there, um, James. I'd love to hear more about it. But right now we want to move on to Katie Holmes's question. Um, she is wondering if the focus on emotions keeps our attention on human responses and reinforces the human nature binary and prevents us, in fact, from thinking more directly and radically about the more than human um, uh, kinds of emotions we might discover there. Who wants to have a go at that one? Briefly, I think, yes, I mean, we are humans, though, and I think we need to be able to kind of start with that and not try and get away from that fact, away from ourselves. But in fact, I think eco-anxiety and these kinds of things open up a, you know, the, the distress that humans are registering of other creatures, of other species, of the planet itself. And, and so, yes, there's a danger there, of course, in saying this is a human thing primarily. And some of the ways that we're responding to climate change are absolutely anthropocentric and absolutely the same sort of stuck thinking and patterns that will not, I think, get us anywhere. But I think we need to start there and move through and break through them. And, you know, it's difficult to do that. But others might have some thoughts about it. Would anyone else like to comment well, on that I, one? I just think that the same caution that we had around um, uh, assuming that emotions that we identify in humans in the past, um, you know, how do we know that they're the same, what we understand those emotions to be in the present when, when you're going beyond the human species, um, you really get on on dangerous ground and, and, and just where it, it needs to be done with care and um, uh, like James, I don't think that that means that you can't go there, but um, that um, you're almost getting to the point of historical imagination beyond beyond empathy, perhaps. It's possibly also about about standpoint. It's not so much speaking for as speaking with um, and taking a position that emphasises the the always and ever present um, entanglement of human and other than human. Um, it's a very hard mindset to get out of, though. We have been anthropocentric thinkers for so long. It's quite difficult to to force your brain to think um, otherwise and to think in a more relational way. But I think oh, there's people out there giving it a red hot go. So um, yeah, we need to keep that keep that point in mind. Thanks very much, Katie. I like Maybe James's I'm... comment that um, historians are fixated on humans. <laughs> That's a good, you know, make pathologize that. <laughs> Carla Pascolet says, uh, wonderful papers. You've reflected on the emotions of historical actors and on the emotions generated in researchers. What is the role of emotion in environmental history to generate emotion in our audiences and readers? Should we be Using history as a kind of theatre of emotions, can it help to contribute to concrete change such as climate action? In other words, can we use our histories quite instrumentally in this way and quite deliberately? Great question, Carla. 
I, I, I'm going to nod furiously and say, yes, absolutely. I think emotional engagement is where we need to go. I mean, um, if nothing, if for no other reason, and that's the power of narrative. I mean, that's, that's what, that's the gift of narrative you know, cultures of storytelling for centuries. That's what we do. Um, and I think, I think sometimes why, why again, and Carla is an, Carla is an oral historian, so she'll appreciate this answer is, I think that oral history allows that emotional connection very, very well. And I think that's when we can add that nuance and those levels of understanding that are really important. So I, I think emotional engagement is something we, we should consciously do in the right moment and the right audience. I would, I would thoroughly agree. Um, I, I think that, we, yeah, we absolutely have a role in remembering, in, in producing hope with teeth in um, China Mievel's phrase. You know, we need, we need not just vague hope but hope with teeth and I think that history can help us to do that. Uh, we might have to move on there. Uh, Mark Wolf says, would anyone like to comment on aspects of melancholy? Hmm, melancholy in relation to climate anxiety perhaps? quite an open-ended question there does anyone have thoughts on you obviously talked about melancholia um, James but that's a slightly different thing maybe melancholy sits somewhere around grief in the uh, the emotional spectrum Nancy did any of your minors experience um, or, well, or was guess, that was that an emotion they performed melancholy from what I've been reading about how psychologists understand various emotions that melancholia is one of the ones that sort of leads to to stasis to to a feeling of not being able to do anything to to being helpless and um and moribund and and so and in contrast with anger for example or even fear which which are activating emotions and so that for for that reason although you know I've been known to engage in a bit of melancholia myself sometimes um it I don't think it's a great emotion to to stay with because it is it's not going to make anything happen thanks okay we might move on to uh possibly our last question we're getting very close here blanche fairly asks these days anxiety is so frequently situated in discourses of psychology mental health and medicine are there alternative less pathological notions and understandings from history uh, that we might be able to reclaim or reinvent so that our understandings of eco-anxiety focus on its potentials and non-pathological, non-psychological dimensions. Ooh, that's a that's a big and curly one. I know that you touched on this in the more contemporary sense, James. But are there less patho- pathologized notions and understandings of eco anxiety or anxiety related to the environment or nature um, that we might be able to reclaim? I think there's a strong histories of alternative responses to ecological crisis. Something I'm really interested in is sort of later 20th century uh, responses to the, the, you know, the findings of environmental science and the, even the, the nuclear threat um, with responses, you know, like the fine plant garden and other communitarian movements to say, let's build something different. Let's build an alternative world. It's interesting how, I mean, context matters and timing matters. And so it's almost like those who are often too early um, and were you know, radical and marginalised and now, of course, it's almost too late. And those things that might have been interesting experiments, might have been good ways of responding to the environment, now seem like they're, I don't know, utopian, idealistic, um, impossible. Uh, yeah, there are some, I think. And, I mean, Earth Emotions, Glenn Albrecht, I think that's 
he tries to say that there are non-pathological, non-medical ways of thinking about this, these affective histories. There's so much more to say, but I'm afraid we have run out of time. We must continue this conversation. Um, we'll look at the Q&A. You're very welcome to get in touch with us and hopefully we can follow uh, follow up on social media and in further events. So I'd like to close by thanking the panel. Um, thank you to everyone for joining us today for all of your questions. I'm very sorry we didn't have an opportunity to get to all of them. Um, we really appreciate your input um, and, of course, to all of our, our panellists for your thoughts. And if you enjoyed what you heard today and want to continue the discussion, you can subscribe to both the Sydney Environment Institute's and the Australian and Aotearoa New Zealand Environmental History Network's newsletters. Um, and I think the, uh, the links are being pasted into the chat. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter at SEI underscore Sydney and at um, ANZ underscore EHN. So thank you again to everybody for coming along. Thanks to the panellists, and we hope to see you again soon.